Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Welcome to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Or, for this episode at least, Fishnets and Bracelets, the Black Canary and Wonder Woman podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and after an unscheduled two-month hiatus, I had to come back to honor the 75th anniversary of one of the greatest superheroes in all of comics, Wonder Woman. And because it's been so long since I've recorded a podcast by myself, I kind of forgot how, I asked a friend to help me celebrate this milestone birthday. You know my guest is the host of the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast, as well as the DC Bloodlines podcast, the Idol Head of Diablo, and the Marvel Superheroes podcast. Please welcome Diablo Frank. What's up, Frank? Hola! <laughs> Look on the bright side, at least Power of Fishnets isn't the annual podcast or biannual podcast like mine's been to date, so you're still well ahead of the curve. How's Underguides going? <laughs> oh, you son of a bitch. Actually, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of not releasing an episode. <laughs> I think it's like like a week or two from now, and uh, I could probably cobble something together, but with my October pretty jam-packed, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, well, I want to thank you for being on this episode. You are a Wonder Woman fan. Yes, yes. I, I'm an atypical Wonder Woman fan, I would say, too, which we'll probably get to later on in the episode. But uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I've been doing this for uh, let's say probably about 93, 94 since about then, as far as being like a really hardcore Wonder Woman fan. Cool. I am a Wonder Woman fan, too. In fact, keep this just between us. I like Wonder Woman more than Black Canary or Zatanna. I'm sorry. That sucks. <laughs> so your your entire uh, solo character podcasting efforts and blogging efforts has been dedicated to the second prettiest girl at the dance, to quote Shag. <laughs> It's it's just lies. It's all lies. Well, the thing um, is, though, is when you were discussing why you started this podcast on the most recent Secret Origins podcast, I, it made me appreciate the character more. So I'm glad that you did that. You know, intellectually, I understand the journey that Black Canary has had. But when you put it in terms of how many doors she opens up in terms of discussion and in terms of inclusion, I really didn't appreciate the versatility of the character, the the uh, the, con the the connectivity of the character. And there's still things about her that I discover all the time that I like more more and more. But Wonder Woman's place in my heart, she is my second favorite DC hero. And I think that makes her my second favorite superhero uh, ever. So just for being that, and, and it's it might not even be faced on the stories or the tangible evidence. It's the it's what's in my heart. It's just almost the iconography as much as anything. Which let me flip that question on you. What do you like about Wonder Woman? You said you've been a fan of her since the mid 90s. What is it about her? My girlfriend's Mexican, and there's a philosophy down south that it's better to laugh than to cry. And one of the earliest Wonder Woman stories I read when I started seriously collecting the character has a moment where Wonder Woman's just in, in enormous peril. There there's seems like there's no way out. And looking that peril in the face, she just smiles and laughs because she's appreciating the challenge of it. And what's wonderful about Wonder Woman to me is that even though they put out those big Alex Ross volumes, and I think one of them had hope in the title, 
title, and Wonder Woman, of course, had truth in her title. But to me, Wonder Woman really embodies hope because she's the person who recognizes that however bad the circumstance is and however little control you may have over a circumstance, you always have control over how you react to it and how you engage that challenge. And basically, there's never been a situation that Wonder Woman has been in where she couldn't find a way of not necessarily getting out of it, but making it better, improving upon it and attacking it in a way where she's not the mopey character. She's not the character who gets beaten down to her soul. Even when she's laid low, you know that she's always going to come back because she believes in herself and she believes in her fellow beings. And I just think that that's such a, a, a powering message for all people. And the fact that she's someone who gives hope to everybody. She's a character that's so involved in, in diversity and inclusion. She's can be everybody's hero. And I think that's just a great thing about the character. She's She belongs to everybody. And she embodies some of the best aspects of superheroics. So many heroes are about finding a problem and punching it. And then that problem is supposed to go away. But you know, when Spider-Man beats up Doc Ock and throws him in jail, Doc Ock's just going to come back a bit. Wonder Woman is one of the only characters in this medium that she doesn't think about, how do I punch this person? She thinks about, how can I stop this bad thing from happening? And then how can I engage with the person who's doing this bad thing and find a way of making them a better person and find a way of getting into the roots of why they're doing this horrible thing so that they can stop doing that and so they can ideally actually be beneficial to mankind. That's one of the great things about the the Marston character especially and how she was represented in her earlier years. She wasn't just about defeating evil. She was about reformation. She was about taking something that's gone wrong and making it better not to just the point of being good but to actually pay it forward so that these potential cancers in our society actually become benevolent and actually do good for their fellow man completely turns the paradigm uh, i think that's just a wonderful message to have in a hero and i think there are very few characters in the comic book medium that more truly embody the concept of heroism than wonder woman hmm. copy and paste all of that for my own response to uh, <laughs> something that i never thought about and i wonder if like if the idea is more i mean i i think a lot of people would say wonder woman does not have a very deep bench in terms of her rogues gallery Perhaps. I mean, if we're comparing her to a Batman or a Spider-Man, hardly anybody has that deep a bench of a rogues gallery. But do you think that might be a byproduct of, as you were saying, she doesn't – she is a, a typical type of superhero and that she doesn't look for those – you know, just punch them, throw them in jail and let them get out again in a couple of months? Is it because of her long game type of solution and that sort of more of a community reformation on a sort of global scale or is the the lack of rogues just a, a byproduct of writing and the mechanics of the storytelling on a meta level i think one of the major issues is that robert kaniger wrote this character for decades and i don't think that he ever fully understood the character and i don't think that he was ever truly happy with being involved with superhero stories i think he wanted to do his war stories and his more realistic grounded stories and he was the one guy who would deal with wonder woman and dealt with her for for many many years and i think that he had a very different philosophy with regards to superheroics and in particular a female uh, hero that it was very much at odds with her creators and with the intentions of the strip when he was initiated so you have a combination of the bizarreness and the you know Malton marston was not someone who was really immersed in comic book lore he wasn't a comic book guy he was much older than most of the creators who were doing books in the golden age so his villains were very wonky his storytelling was bizarre it was a very different world and he had very different goals in mind when he was creating his superhero universe then you have Kaniger go in there who basically was 
would just come up with some random menace for two stories per issue for decades as part of his job. I really felt like it was a job to him. And then because the creators were either dead or atypical, the readership wasn't engaged in the same way as would be common for most comic book heroes. And so I think a lot of times the the readerships, their goals when reading Wonder Woman are different from the common reader. I don't think they're as concerned with who the villain is and how she's going to beat them and how cool and how dark are they. But you also uh, make a good point in that many of the characters that were Wonder Woman villains were reformed. They do turn good and they do become beneficial. So, yeah, I mean, you've actually got generations sometimes of villains in Wonder Woman's Rose Gallery where she keeps turning them good and then you have to come up with a new evil version of that same mantle so that she can continue to fight this person because the previous incarnation is nice now. Uh, that's hmm. happened with the Cheetahs. It's happened with Silver Swan, Paula von Gunther. It's just it's a very common thing with her. I was thinking about her origin uh, not too long ago, and we've talked about this for what will be an upcoming episode of your own podcast. But thinking about it again, if we make the conceit that there is a trinity at DC that consists of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, I, I like all of their origins, and there certainly there is an iconic timelessness about them. But what I noticed was that Wonder Woman's is much more proactive and assertive. Whereas Superman and Batman were, in a sense, both victims of circumstance. Superman's planet was destroyed and he was sent here as a baby against his will. And just the fact that he's on a different planet changes his physiology, gives him these powers. Bruce Wayne, five, eight, ten years old, however old he is when it happens, his parents are gunned down in the street. They're taken away from him by this random act of violence, and that leads him on this journey where he is going to rise up and make sure nobody else ever has to feel that pain. But in a sense, you know, they're both passive participants in what gives them their origins and their strength to a certain extent. Wonder Woman is not. I mean, in a sense, she is created. She's part of this this supernatural culture. But when you think about why, how she becomes a hero, what sets her on this course to man's world – she is active. She competes in this contest with the other Amazonians to take Steve Trevor back to man's world against the wishes of her mother. She actually has to do it in disguise. And I think when you look at Superman and when you look at Batman, you you see what formed them as these superhero characters. But other than Clark Kent lands in Kansas and he's raised by the Kents, what's the first mission Superman goes on? What's the first life that he saves? Well, I don't know if there is one canonically because it's been reinterpreted so many different times, so many different ways. What's Batman's first case? Okay, you had a pre-crisis version that established that, but it was changed after the crisis. I'm sure it's changed in the New 52. It's changed every time they recast him in the movies. So there's always this sort of amorphousness, but you know that Wonder Woman's first job, her her origin is taking Steve back to America or the States or, or, or Man's World, taking him off of that. So the fact that she has that, that sense of agency about her own formation, about what makes her a superhero, I think makes her different than the other two. And I just, the more I thought about that, I really, really liked it. Yeah, I had a conversation with Chris Claremont recently, and I spent a good chunk of it biting my tongue because he, he went on a, a, a bit of a lecture, honestly, about how Marvel was essentially inherently superior to DC, how the Marvel characters, because of their pathos and because of their backstory, and because of the whole feet of clay aspect, that that was the right way to do comics. And then what DC does, they're just icons, they're just images, they're not fully formed characters, and so they're inherently inferior. And I think in the case of Wonder Woman especially, she's almost 
the antithesis of the Marvel character because, mm-hmm. as you state, she doesn't come from a tragic background. She comes from a place where she was nurtured, where she was loved, where she developed in ways that aren't even available to people in our world to this day. And when an, an inspirational event occurs, she decides that she wants to go out into the world. She wants to engage with that world. She, as you say, has to go against the amours of her society in order to do this. But she's decided that she wants to live a bigger life than what's allowed for her to take all of the uh, skills that she's been given, all the uh, opportunities that she's had, and go out into the world and try to give those opportunities to other people to try to make the world a better pace rather than just you know enjoying Paradise Island. And there's nothing less Marvel like than somebody who's just that proactive and that well equipped and who just makes the conscious choice without any sort of particular O. Henry twist in their life that forces them to become heroes. No, I'm going to be a hero. And I think that that's actually a problem that we have in our society in general. People feel like they have to have some event that makes them become something better than what they were to try to do something for their fellow man and just step up essentially. And the truth is, if you talk to people that are involved in healthcare, in, in emergency services, police officers, firefighters, their parents didn't get shot. They didn't have some traumatic backstory. They just decided that they wanted to do something that would be beneficial to society. It makes them feel good. They're happy to actually have a positive impact on the world around them. And that's what makes them heroes. There's not a psychology to it. There's not a pathology to it. They just want to do good. And I don't think there's anything wrong with heroes that are heroes just for goodness sake. I wish that more people would make that choice instead of deciding that they have to be bitten by a radioactive spider to just be decent to the fellow man. And I think we see that in the way that a lot of the DC characters have been altered for film and television in the recent years. And a lot of times it meets with a certain degree of failure because it feels like they're betraying the character. I mean, the Green Lantern movie had a number of sins, but I maintain that one of its greatest sins was the producers or the writers, whoever was approaching that, was trying to tell a Spider-Man character arc with the character who is the opposite of Peter Parker. Hal Jordan could not be more different from Peter Parker, and yet they're trying to make him this conflicted, oh, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm worthy. He's full of like self-doubt. It's like, that is no, that isn't the opposite of the character. And they did the same thing with Superman in Man of Steel. And I don't want a Superman who questions himself to that point where he's just going to be crying in a church. I've made this case a number of times. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point. But one of my major issues with the DC Comics of the Bronze Age, I wasn't a fan of DC in the Silver Age, really not that much in the Golden Age, because I agreed with a lot of their critics where the stories are somewhat flat. They are fairly simplistic, fairly moralistic. But they were also designed for very young children. And I could approach those stories much more easily as a child than I can as, as an adult who, you know, let's face it, ideally should have grown out of reading superhero comic books anyway. But one of the problems I have with the Bronze Age specifically is that you had Marvel being very successful, doing what they do, humanizing their heroes, which is great. I love the Marvel Universe as well. It's just a different universe from DC. At DC, you had a bunch of guys trying to write the DC characters as though they were Marvel, suddenly deciding these characters had personalities they didn't have before. Certainly Wonder Woman is, is a prime example of someone who suddenly became a real awful person for about a decade there, uh, in part mm-hmm. because of men's ideas of what feminism is, which is still a poison in the minds of society today as far as what that means but most of the dc heroes were suddenly they were having these lapses in judgment they were crying and whining and finding all sorts of arch characterization that didn't have any resonance with the characters they had been prior to it being applied to them and it did feel sometimes like somebody just pulled a personality out of a hat and handed it to character x character b character c it wasn't organic 
And I'm glad that by the 80s, especially I think post-crisis, DC kind of figured out how to incorporate enough elements of Marvel to make the characters fit contemporaneously with the expectations of the medium without completely altering the characters to where they weren't recognizable as the iconic heroes they had been. And I feel like a lot of the DC movies now, it's like they're still stuck in a cinematic 70s. They're still trying to look at DC and go, oh, this isn't as good as Marvel. Let me try to make them more like Marvel instead of trying to figure out what the DC universe is and beat the characters on their own terms. They're still trying to assign them uh, Marvel-like attributes instead of figuring out who they were and how to sell what the essential appeal of the characters are to a broader audience. I don't think anybody wants to drink the Shasta version of the Marvel Universe. You don't want to... Just because it's it's a soda doesn't mean it's comparable. Give them their own flavor. Give them something like a Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew is nothing like Coca-Cola. The people who want Mountain Dew are looking for something completely different than Coca-Cola. So that's what they need to do with DC. Stop trying to be Marvel before they were trying to be the anti-Marvel by being excessively dark, excessively uh, operatic to try to make all the DC heroes fit into the Nolan Batman mold. Now I think they're probably shifting the other way where they're going to try to make them all happy and jokey. And I don't think they're going to fit well either way. I think that they need to let people figure out who the DC characters are. And ideally it would be someone like a modern day Richard Donner who looks at who the character has always been, what they mean to the audience, and bring that forward into a, a contemporary environment. I would hope we get that at some point just because of contracts and the way the, the studio is playing these things. I have no idea if we'll see that soon. Well, I think the problem, too, is that DC doesn't have a Kevin Feige. I wish there was one really smart person in there in a major role helping to guide the universe and knowing when to put their hands on it and when to take their hands off of it. And right now, it just feels like too many chefs in the in the kitchen. Yeah, I was talking to Nathaniel Wayne about it, and we made the point that Marvel exerts tremendous control on their movies, but they do it all on the front end. They make sure the directors and the storytellers and everybody knows exactly what product they're making before it gets started. And that's how you have somebody like Edgar Wright bailing on Ant-Man before the movie starts. But DC seems to be exerting their control on the editing and everything at the end of the movie before it happens. And they're doing it in large part in reaction to other things. And it's just it's 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 turning the movies into messes. And I don't think that's the way to go. I'm going to do my best to continue to give the one one movie of 2017 the benefit of the doubt. I've heard the same things you've heard. And it makes me worry. I would love to have a movie about Wonder Woman that makes me feel the way watching Superman in the theater in 79 made me feel. It probably won't happen. I'm obviously a different person than I was as a child. But my hope is that somewhere, at some point, they've got to figure it out. They're not just going to keep throwing spaghetti at the wall and waiting to see if something sticks. At some point, they're going to have to decide what they're going to be. And I hope that what it is, you've got a strong enough director or a strong enough screenwriter that somebody's willing to just stand up and say, look, this is the movie that this has to be. I know what I'm doing. You're going to have to trust me. And that they are right when they make that assertion and that Warner Brothers backs the play once it's in motion. Well, this isn't actually what I wanted to talk about. And folks, believe it or not, there is another reason we're celebrating Wonder Woman on this particular podcast. There is a Wonder Woman and Black Canary team-up story that I have wanted to talk about for a long time. It is written by Darwin Cook, who is one of my favorite storytellers in the comic book medium. And it was published in Justice League, the New Frontier special, a companion to Darwin Cook's New Frontier that was released in conjunction with the DC animated version of the story. 
This particular team-up finds the amazing Amazon and the girl gladiator in the 1960s stirring up a whole lot of trouble at a very famous club. And Frank and I are going to review that story right after this promotional break. Don't go away. Automa, Argus, Automa, Ballistic, Cardinal Sin, Channelman, Chimera, Edge, Freight Train, Geist, Gunfire, Akrat, Harry Force, Hitman, Hook, Jam, Joe Public, Loria, Crack, Layla, Lionheart, Loose Cannon, Megabiter, Mongoloid, Myriad, Nightblade, Output, Pass, Prism, Razor Shark, Rodney Jane, Samaritan, Shadow Strike, Slick Shot, Smart Shot, Terrorist Wow, that's a lot of radical trademark names. And you may not have heard of any of them, but they were all introduced in DC Comics' 1993 Summer Annuals. Most went on to figure into more stories within their four-color universe. Many earned their own spotlight series, and one became a cult hit from acclaimed creators. While the comics of the 1990s are often derided, for me, as a longtime comic book reader, I found a deepened fandom and a safe harbor from the Chromium Age in the DCU. I fell in love with the history and legacy found in generations of heroic mantles, and my journey into this continuity largely began with Bloodlines. Join me, Diablo Frank, as I explore the more overlooked areas of DC Comics' superheroes, beginning with an early 90s intellectual property generating stunt and fanning outward towards other obscurities and icons from throughout decades of sequential art stories, all flowing through the DC bloodlines. Podcast available on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. She's just a girl and she's on fire. Hotter than a fantasy, lonely like a highway. She's living in Filled with catastrophe, but she knows she can fly away. It's 1962, and being politically correct means you're a Democrat. She's a woman of distinguished endeavors, but this time the Amazon princess outdoes herself. Join us as our raven-haired warrior becomes the mother of the movement. Written by Darwin Cook, with art by Jay Bone, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Jared Fletcher, and edited by Dan DiDio with assistant editor Ian Sattler. We open with Wonder Woman mopping the floor of some supervillain lair filled with generic Hydra-style goons and a giant robot in the background. The Black Canary sits back, casually allowing Wonder Woman to finish up the bad guys and suggesting that maybe Diana needs to relax. But how can Wonder Woman act chill when every man she encounters is a sexist pig? Even when that's the least of their sins, like the room full of barely conscious world-dominating supercriminals littering the floor at her feet. Wonder Woman picks up a discarded issue of Playboy magazine that one of the goons dropped whilst being throttled. She's disgusted by the way American society demeans women and, in the case of Playboy, forces them to dress as bunnies for male titillation. Black Canary tells Wonder Woman that a new Playboy club is about to open in Gotham City. Wonder Woman vows to attend the club and deliver a message of Amazonian love, and Black Canary opts to go with her in case the message isn't well received and turns into a beatdown. 
A week later, Wonder Woman goes to the Playboy Club disguised as her civilian identity, Diana Prince. Black Canary attends, dressed as Black Canary, fishnets and all. And she argues, rightly, that she's doing a better job of blending into the surroundings of the club than Diana in her suit and glasses. But Wonder Woman and Black Canary aren't the only crime fighters at the club that night. Diana spots Bruce Wayne talking to Hugh Hefner, and when the ladies confront Wayne, he babbles some lame excuse about following a criminal into the club, and the only reason he'd be caught dead there is in the name of justice. He abruptly flees from the club, shamed by Dinah and Diana. What a world we live in, Diana says, when even the good guys are dogs. Hefner addresses the patrons from the stage, telling them the Mingus Trio Band will be taking a break, probably a reference to jazz legend Charlie Mingus, although none of the musicians shown actually on the page look like Charlie Mingus. Hefner then welcomes to the stage an extra special cake to celebrate the opening of the Playboy Club. Inside the cake, he promises, is a barely-dressed Hollywood sex symbol, Jane Mansfield. But Diana throws Mansfield aside and hides in the cake herself. Black Canary wheels the cake onto the stage to the hoots and hollers of the crowd until Wonder Woman bursts from the top of the cake in full costume and glory. The men are stunned silent. Wonder Woman tells them their oppression of women must end, that together men and women can create a more harmonious world where they can live and work together in equality. The men boo and hiss and throw their drinks at her. Wonder Woman and Black Canary then dive into the crowd and beat up the men. Hugh Hefner splashes Wonder Woman's breastplate with his drink and ignites it with his cigarette lighter. Diana scoffs at the attack and removes the breastplate. She holds the flaming breastplate, which looks a lot like a burning bra, up in the air for the Playboy bunnies to see. Despite the fact that she's beaten them senseless, the battered and broken men on the floor still find the strength to ogle the now topless Wonder Woman. Diana and Black Canary leave the Playboy Club feeling like they've struck a powerful blow for women's liberation. They're cheered on by the Playboy bunnies, including one undercover journalist and future feminist icon, Gloria Steinem. The end. All right, it's a short six-page little story. Frank, what did you think of the mother of the movement? I like Darwin Cook. I don't feel like Cook is a humorist, and I think that this was an attempt at a humorous story. For the most part, I didn't see much humor in it. And the problem is the whole point of it is to poke fun at humorless feminists. And that's what Wonder Woman is in this story. That's the role that she's being made to play. And I think that in times of her history, that's been an accurate representation of the character or at least how she's written by male writers. But it just kind of grates on me a bit. And with the exception, my favorite bit actually is when Bruce Wayne shows up because it had been a number of years since I'd read the story. I forgot exactly how it played out. So I naturally assumed, oh, okay, Bruce is here undercover. He actually is trying to catch a bad guy. And then when he starts breaking out into a cold sweat, I'm like, oh, okay, that's the gag. Because I didn't see that particular gag coming, that was humorous to me, but it was humor based on the character of Bruce Wayne, not necessarily the intent of the story. It's a cute story. I can let it slide because I know what he's trying to do with it. But I also think that Darwin Cook was a man of a certain age and a certain perspective, and I think that plays out in the story that is is illustrating his inclinations more than it is Wonder Woman's. I read this story years ago. And I loved it. I remembered loving it. And then I kind of forgot about the salient details until after I asked you to review the story with me. Um, And this actually reminds me now of a quote from the TV show BoJack Horseman, where a character says, when you look at something with rose-tinted glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. Uh, So, (laughs) and after like really diving into this and, and scrutinizing it, it yeah I, I don't know I don't know what ver- image of feminism he is trying to I don't want to say he's promoting a, a certain agenda but like the type of feminist character that Wonder Woman is 
she just beats up a crowd of men that are basically at the equivalent of a strip club. And uh, it just seems really overly reactionary. And well, is that's, it just me? That's is- humor, though. I mean, if you look at the guys on the floor with their teeth knocked out, they're all grinning. And they make a point of showing that they still found pleasure in this whole endeavor. So I think that's part of the point is that it, he's going for humor. He's going for gags. I don't think it's meant to be taken seriously. I don't think that it's any political agenda of his being manifest. I think it's just that he's taken the straw feminist character type, applied it to Wonder Woman with the intent of humorous effect, but he's not really a humorist. And so it just kind of grates you if you actually are of a feminist mindset. But I, I think that, again, the whole point is to poke fun at humorous feminists. I don't want to be that guy. I just wish it was funnier. Yeah, maybe that's the because is it me or like on the last page, Hugh Hefner tries to set Wonder Woman on fire. Yeah, that does look intentional, and that's why it, honestly I didn't catch that it was Hugh Hefner when I was reading it. So I was like, where did the supervillain come from? It just didn't yeah. catch. And it, you're right, it's 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 a little over the top. He's never, I mean, he's never called Hugh Hefner, but right? Well, we know who the character is supposed at, to be. Though. And if I mean, certainly the image of Hugh Hefner, which has been around for a long time, we, there's certainly a contemporary image of him as this old man in a bathrobe and a, a pipe or the scar or something. But if you look at him in the '60s or the late '50s when this was around, when when the Playboy clubs were first opening up yeah it's him and no, it's, as, as soon as you said it you were absolutely right i knew what you were talking about it's just i didn't catch it myself while i was reading it uh, I, I think i was only half checked in while i was reading it too it just didn't i'll be honest with you the whole special when i bought it when it first came out i read it once it was like oh okay that was a thing and then i tossed it into my closet and it literally it got destroyed it was just trampled and i stuffed up <laughs> and it's not that i hated the book i just had so little regard for it the only thing i cared about was the advertisement for the fake marshmallow comic and john henry comic inside it the rest Which of the book, i would have bought the crap oh, out of those yes, comics if both, those were real yes awesome great covers i'd still like somebody to do that just go ahead and make the facsimile it wouldn't that have been great like when julie schwartz passed away and they went mm-hmm. and they did that whole little week fifth week event where they were doing julie style books wouldn't have been great if they'd done that with darwin cook you know do a loser's book they're kind of doing it now in uh whatever the pete tomasi pat gleason superman book is where they actually have found the, the losers and they've gone to dinosaur island and such if they'd done a whole line of that and done something like a john henry one shot that would have been so sweet i think one of the last interviews with darwin cook before he died like he he basically talked about how like the dc the the editorial and the corporate structure just they had no use and no desire to do his type of stories they were fine putting his covers on their books because god knows there was enough of a nostalgic kick where people liked the uh, the imagery that he was producing but i I guess just like his, his voice and his flavor his his type of stories they just he he at least he was under the impression that DC could not care less about that and had no interest in that kind of storytelling. But the thing of it too is when I was talking with Howard Chaikin, he talked about how he and James Robinson never did their Silver Age companion mm. to the Golden Age miniseries because Darwin Cook had done this, and he was saying how it was obvious how much Darwin Cook loved this material. But the truth is, if you go and you listen to interviews with Cook, he says he doesn't like superheroes. He doesn't like all the Silver Age stuff. What he likes is the time period, and he likes the stories of these people who not unlike what we were talking about with Wonder Woman they're motivated guys they're guys who were achievers they were guys who found that new frontier were pushing toward that new frontier it's not that he wanted to write stories about Hal Jordan and Barry Allen he wanted to write stories about those kind of men living in that era so mm-hmm. everybody wanted him to do his sweet little you know throwback superhero stuff but even he didn't like that stuff he just liked that those stories gave him the opportunity to do a Justice League miniseries at a time when anything Justice League was selling 
writing allowed him to work with the type of characters he wanted to do. But what he wanted to do was stuff like the Parker adaptations. He likes the noir. He likes real human beings in extraordinary circumstances, but not fantastic type circumstances. But all anybody wanted from him is New Frontier 2, New Frontier 3. And I think that fatigue shows in this special because he's just sort of, you know, doodling in the margins. But I don't think he's committed to this as anybody else was going into the book. Well, I think I agree with that because I think even if you really look at the New Frontier closely, he pulls away from the superheroes as much as he can. We see Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman and the Flash a little bit, but sort of sparingly. Like the the main characters that we focus on are Hal Jordan, and he doesn't become Green Lantern until the last chapter. The same thing with John, who doesn't show up and this is the, the typical Martian mind. Like he's using it – he uses John as the alien hiding amongst our society type of story. He doesn't go into the superheroics of that until the end, like the final climactic battle. And the other things that he focuses on are things like Task Force X and the Challengers of the Unknown, which are very steeped in that era and less the sort of superhero tropes. And, and the truth is, uh, Cook did state that he loved this take on Wonder Woman. He loved, you know, uh, his his version, his idea of who the character was. And there is, uh, it's relevant to the stories that have been published. This Wonder Woman does exist in the comics. But I'm not a fan of Wonder Woman the warrior, Wonder Woman the reactionary. You know, Cook very rarely seems to want to draw Wonder Woman without a sword and a shield. And yeah. uh, he, he, he emphasizes that so much, and that's present here. And it's one of the issues I have with Wonder Woman stories in general is that I would enjoy the story more if it had been an issue of sensational comics, you know, the little mm-hmm. Wonder Woman anthology that it did, because that's a book that's being sold to Wonder Woman fans. And so there's a much greater allowance for a variety of perspectives on the character. One of the problems with books like this and also at a Kingdom Come is that this is a book that's being bought by people who aren't Wonder Woman fans. And then they come to this story and they think that's who she is. And then that's how they write her in future stories. I would be a lot more for giving of the story if it had been in my culture, in the Wonder Woman culture, but it's out there and it's tainting the perception of the character. And that irks me. It's just, it it doesn't sit well with me. Um, It's a fun, goofy little story, but it pays to a mindset that uh, I think is very much counter to the intentions of the character or creator and my enjoyment of stories of that type. I don't want to read these type of stories. You actually brought up what the next question that I was going to ask, which concerns the way Darwin Cook depicted the character. Because if you just look at the body, the costume, and everything like that, the physicality, I love the way Darwin Cook draws the character of Wonder Woman. Maybe my favorite interpretation of her ever, except for the fact that, you know, you can't look at a sketch of her or a cover or something. Almost all the time, she's carrying that sword that drives me crazy. And, you know, I loved in New Frontier that when she stands up on, from the, the table when she's in Southeast Asia and she's taller than Superman. I loved that image, but... I'm never really crazy about how he wrote her in that story and in this issue and the different stories here. But, I mean, I I love when he draws her without the sword, but I don't know. What did you think about the way Jay Bone, his art in this story? It's not the crystalline ideal that I have in my mind of who Wonder Woman is. But I still love his interpretation because I love that she's uh, she's bigger and she's thicker and she's curvier and there are women out there that can look at her and see themselves in the character. So I want this interpretation to be out there. I want that image. I want women readers to be able to see themselves in this character and see her as an aspirational figure. So I'm I'm 100% behind J-Bone's take and I enjoyed Darwin Cook's drawings of the character 
when she didn't have a sword or was covered in blood, uh, when her invisible jet isn't a, a small pool of her own gore. <laughs> but um, the other thing I want to say, though, is within the context of New Frontier, I don't have a problem with his take on the character because it worked for the story he was telling. And there were compromises made to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman in that story for the sake of the story. It wasn't their story, and they were problematic elements in the story. They weren't... They were there to show why you needed the next generation to come. They were the old guard that was inhibiting the progression of mankind and their ability to move on to this new, better place from the post-war years. So I didn't have an issue with it within the context of that story. I just wish there weren't so many stories like that or aping that or influenced by that. And I wish that he were willing to tell other stories with the character in places like this. And instead, he just doubles down on the xenification of the character. Mm. But J-Bone is awesome, and I, I love the imagery he uses here. What about because this is by, uh, originally a Black Canary podcast? I'm not sure Dinah needed to be in this story at all. I, I'm glad she is because she was completely absent from the New Frontier. She appeared in two panels. So I'm glad that she was here, but does she need to be here? The honest truth, if you look at the first page, the splash, you've got this great big kind of goofy, almost Tex Avery-ish Wonder Woman logo. And then in like maybe a <laughs> third of the size at best is the Black Canary logo. I think there's an instance of Wonder Woman needed somebody to play off of and Black Canary was the obvious choice. That having been said, I think of every character in the story, she comes off the best. And I do think that he she's the character who is most in tune with Darwin Cook's frequency. And it is a crying shame that the man never wrote any more stories about her. I actually think that there are a lot of Catwoman stories that Darwin Cook participated in that would have been better as Black Canary stories. Hmm. I could say that. Yeah. I... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish he did more with her just because of the type. I mean, you could tell, as we said, he liked the, the Parker, the Pulp Noir type of stories. You can tell Black Canary stories with that, whether it's in the era, put her like time specific or just update it, but kind of keep this, the same type of tropes. It did remind me, I remember we talked about Black Canary a while ago, and I always kind of made the illusion just sort of in passing, but just because it, it was sort of seemed like the, the easiest thing of that she's dressed like a prostitute. And I think you maybe mentioned that, no, she seems more like a character than the fishnets. And a hostess Bustier, at a club. A hostess at a club, exactly. Like she was like it wasn't meant to be like it wasn't like street grungy, like she's, you know, just out turning tricks on the corner. She's more high class than that. And I really see that when I look at the story. It's like, yeah, she does look like that. And if you if you need an excuse, like Google images or something of Playboy bunnies or something, you'd see, yeah, that's kind of the type of costume that I see with her in my mind. It's not, you know, leather, you know, trashy type of stuff that they did with her in her more recent series when she a rock star it's more like this yeah well, and one thing that's nice about the black canary character too is with wonder woman her costume got smaller and smaller and smaller and i think that that divorced her more and more from a female audience and it played more and more to the prurient interests of a readership but what's great about black canary is i think she was always classy and she always like i said looked like an upscale hostess there was a little bit of sex appeal there's a little bit of risque there but even in its time not too much and then as the years have gone by the costume gets more kind of sweet and more quaint and 
and she still represents that late 40s, early 50s in her look when she's in this costume, and it makes her seem actually classier than most people. Uh, she's <laughs> kind of got that retro burlesque thing, but without so much overt sexuality to it. So I, I when I'd always kind of I, I never could understand the perspective of the prostitute because she's just way too classy for that. She's just kind of she's really not that different from Zatanna, and in fact, Zatanna's mm-hmm. worn so much more risque stuff than Black Canary. So she just seems classy to me. I think I probably just had the idea in mind looking at some of her looking at well probably like the way Ed Benes approached her costume yeah. during the during the Birds of Prey run with like the fishnets that were just sheer, you know, they didn't have the blue texture and like the one piece over like the leotard over her with being like the sleeveless and the zipper up the front. I think that kind of gave me a different impression of it. Yeah, Benes has a real gift for making anything sorted. Even if <laughs> Superman was a little bit like, he's got bulges that I don't need him to have, you know? I mean, no character was safe from Dennis. You know, Batman's lips had a certain pucker to them where it's like, Batman, what are you doing? Just, no. I think actually Gail Simone was asked about that one time. She's like, what do you feel about Benes' approach? She's like, I was okay with the cheesecake because he could supply an equal amount of beefcake. So. And that yeah. is true. That did get equal time, and she took advantage of that, and God bless her for it. I'm, I'm a big <laughs> fan of the Simone Birds of Prey run, at least the first uh, couple of years of it. So, mm-hmm. One thing I just have to point out, too, Darwin Cook, imagine if he had done a proposal for Black Canary. And he'd gotten one of these guys that was just kind of coming up a few years ago, like a Chris Samney uh, mm-hmm. doing the artwork. And he could have just basically told the kind of stories he wanted to tell through Black Canary and let her have that kind of attitude and have that sort of retro noir quality. How freaking awesome would that have been instead of the New 52 crud we got? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're t- yeah, you're speaking right to my heart. I mean, that's I, I would have loved all of that. There are lots of creators that I can think of that I would love to approach like a Black Canary story, and and certainly his. I, I think his his aesthetic styles and his craft and his kind of just taste would have been suitable for her. Um, I, I mean, I don't really have much more to say about the story. Maybe I was looking at it too closely and trying to really like pull it pull it apart and kind of feeling like it was a little bit overreactionary like I wasn't I wasn't into this version of feminism that he was depicting but maybe like he said he was just maybe he was just trying to make a joke and it just wasn't that funny that could be it but uh sticking on Darwin Cook really quick before we go there was one other thing that I wanted to share on the last episode of this podcast which dropped way back in August uh, I covered my experience at Boston Comic-Con but there was one important thing that I forgot to mention the program for the convention featured an illustration by Darwin Cook. I had never seen the image before that, but there is a 2011 date on it, so I'm sure it's – I mean it wasn't a Boston Comic-Con exclusive. The image shows a group of DC heroes in profile as they run or fly into action. The group includes the original JLA members Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, and the Martian Manhunter, as well as Hawk Girl, Zatanna, Power Girl, Dr. Fate, Deadman, and The Spectre. I will post a picture of this cover on the Fire and Water website for this episode. Frank, you've seen the image. What do you think about it? Oh, it's lovely. It's I, I couldn't tell for sure if I'd seen this specific image before because he's done variations of this a lot, I think, by request of DC Comics. But it's just – it's a really lovely shot. You know it's a great shot when the main character is Hal Jordan and I still like it. Um, <laughs> but, but also it has a Fleischer-esque Wonder Woman that he – I don't think I've seen him draw anywhere else and it's absolutely gorgeous. And she's in her classic look. He's not throwing all these affectations on top of her. Uh, it's It's great. 
I was just amazed by the, you know, the characters that he chose to spotlight on this cover. It's nice that he's got the original seven members of the Justice League, but also like throws out nods to Hawk Girl because there's certainly uh, people who, you know, coming into this from, you know, maybe Justice League animated fans who are fans of that, but also Zatanna, favorite of mine, Power Girl. And then you've got these like mystical characters, Dead Man, the Spectre and Dr. Fate interesting collection of characters, but I just, I love this group. Did, did any of them make it in New Frontier? I don't recall any of those guys. Um, the, the Golden Age characters were taken off the board because he kind of referenced the fall of the JLA when they were like, when they refused to testify in front of HUAC. Uh, we see them. Uh, I don't think any of those others were in New Frontier, no. Yeah. And as part of my outreach to Rob Kelly, I really wish he'd foregrounded Aquaman there, though. <laughs> I mean, he's he's there, but he's so far away, man. Come on. At least he did that one cover month where he did all the variant covers where we got that great landscape shot of, uh, what was it, Aquaman and Mirror, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, uh, well, though, yeah. by the way, those were gorgeous. I loved those covers. But here on this one, he's got Aquaman with the trident. And I, oh, that's the same thing with Wonder Woman with a sword. It's like there's this new like hard line at DC that these characters need these weapons. Like they're going to sell toys of them or something. It's like, why are you giving them weapons like this? I give a lot more flexibility to the trident just because he came packaged with one in his superpowers uh, figure. So I, I, I allow for it. I just, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Skewer Man. You know, that's mm. not really my conception of who Aquaman is, but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, Frank, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Bracelets and Fishnets podcast. Final thoughts about Wonder Woman before we go? No, but I've got some recommendations. Uh, not interested. We'll move on. Yeah, no, go ahead. What are some of the Wonder Woman stories that people should be checking out? Okay, I, I narrowed it down to just four. Uh, I recommend 1941 through 42's Extended Origin of Wonder Woman from All-Star Comics number 8, Sensation Comics number 1, and Wonder Woman number 1 by William Moulton Marston and Harry G. Peter. Well, as much as I like the very original core origin story from All-Star, really you don't get the full Wonder Woman experience until you've read all three of those short stories as a combination. And you can do that in the Wonder Woman Archive Edition Volume 1, Wonder Woman Chronicles Volume 1, and probably right around now or a few weeks prior to this release, uh, the Golden Age Omnibus will be available reprinting those stories as well. Next choice, which will show that I'm not the typical Wonder Woman fan, uh, 1969's Return to Paradise Island from the new Wonder Woman number 183 through 184 by Mike Sikowski and Dick Giordano. Uh, it was reprinted in Diana Prince Wonder Woman Volume 1. I'm a big fan of the depowered period of Wonder Woman. I understand why that was problematic for feminists of the day, but those are great stories. They're great fun. They actually would make wonderful Black Canary stories, and given that they don't work very well in in most any continuity with Wonder Woman, sometimes I wish they would just gift that continuity to Black Canary. Let her be the <laughs> one to hang out with Ching and maybe give her Doctor uh, Cyber since it doesn't seem like Wonder Woman's ever going to get any use out of her. Um, I have thought about that same thing. I have thought about <laughs> what, what if it, during that time period, if that depowered Wonder Woman, if those had just been Black Canary stories, if she had gotten her own series or if it was a series of backups or something. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I am with you on that one. Yeah, And have you read those stories? I've read a number of them. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think I've read them, but I've, I've read a couple of them just when sort of just general research. And I really got sucked in because I I've maybe I mean, other than, you know, Darwin Cook, but like for sustained art runs, I really like Dick Giordano. And I think Ross Andrew was Ross Andrew drawing her during that era, too. Uh, it was pretty much entirely Mike Sikowski on pencils, but Giordano inked just about all of it. 
Why was I thinking Ross Andrew was drawing some well, of that? No, Ross Andrew was like the Silver Age artist. Um, so it, it's, it's a natural assumption to make. It's just that Sikowski, I think if I recall correctly, he specifically left Justice League or was booted off of Justice League, depending on how it worked out, mm-hmm. and went over to Wonder Woman and then had a nice long run on that book. And that was like his last big ongoing title with DC before they started kind of showing him the door. And, uh, you know, Denny O'Neill had written those stories earlier on, but then Sikowski took over the full creative reins, and I enjoyed it much better because he was just telling more straightforward adventure stories. But in the case of this specific one, Return to Paradise Island, it's a two-parter where it's Diana, who normally is treated as being superior to the other Amazons, which is another thing I have issues with. In this case, she's actually going in there basically inferior to the Amazons. She has less power than any of them, and so she has to prove herself under those terms using strategy against one of her greatest enemies, Ares, the god of war. And between the story and the art, I just, I love that story. And like you, back in the early 90s, I was able to find bits and pieces of, of Wonder Woman's earlier adventures, fairly cheap, you know, like low-grade copies you could get still because nobody was looking for those books. And I absolutely loved those issues, the Sikowski period, much more than any of the stuff that Kaniger had been involved with or any of the other stuff in that time period I could get my hands on. So just by cherry picking and getting an issue here an issue there as I was able to find them not even cherry picking just you know catch as catch can is what it really was and each time I bought one of those Diana Princes it was a blast cool alright great what's your next recommendation uh, 1992's Wonder Woman Volume 2 number 66 through 71 uh, I'm calling it Noble Pirates All. It's actually had a ton of different stories. Uh, Amazon in Exile, Amazon in Exodus, uh, Space Pirate Wonder Woman, all these different stories. It was by William Esther Loebs and Paris Cullens. And the only the first part has ever been reprinted in the DC Retroactive Wonder Woman, the 90s special. Okay. And it was actually, it, it goes to show, when I was getting into Wonder Woman, there was a cult around George Press. The, there was uh, just the readership of the book at that time period. There was only one right person to do that character and it was George Perez and they hated the story arc so much in fact if you read the letters pages uh, incoming editor Ruben Diaz devoted a column and a half of one letters column just to defending the creative team Paris Collins' <laughs> run of the book literally lasted just the story arc and then they got oh. in Lee Motor but it's absolutely it's probably my favorite Wonder Woman story arc of all time because it shows it, you know that was a story that convinced me to be a Wonder Woman fan because it showed me her incredible perseverance Experience, her, her ability to meet these extraordinary challenges with a smile and a, and a knowing you know, wink of the eye, sometimes a very bruised and swollen eye, in fact, in that story. It's basically taking the uh, prison exploitation movies of the 1970s and turning them into sci-fi and then turning them into Wonder Woman stories. And it all works in a way reflecting William Bolton Marston in a way that virtually no one else has ever done since. I just love that story, The Pieces. The final one is 2000's JLA, A League of One, uh, a hardcover uh, original graphic novel by Christopher Mahler. It's been reprinted twice in softcover, most recently just last year. And Mahler's not really that well-known of a creator. He's a painter. He did several uh, paintings for DC's poster series in years back, including probably the, my single favorite Marshman Hunter poster ever produced. And he has a very unique style. He contributed to Ruins, for instance, which was the anti-Marvel's miniseries that Warren Ellis did. So it's dark and it's like meaty. It's like everybody looks like they're kind of scarred up or wrinkled 
recycled or what have you. So he's not the person you'd think of for a Roman story. But this one is just such a great entry-level book. This is this book that I would want to put into somebody's hands if they'd never read one of one stories before. And it's basically because of a, a mythical MacGuffin where she has to defeat each of the members of the Justice League in turn. And she does it in a way where obviously she's empathetic to her fellow heroes and she doesn't want to have to do it, but she still gets to kick their butt and still be the Wonder Woman that I admire at the same time. And it's beautifully painted. It, it looks fantastic. If you're a fan of the Hildebrands, it's got a lot of that autumnal color to it. But for me, it's got a nice grit to it that, that isn't present in the Hildebrands work. The Martian Manhunter poster you reference, is that the one with him sort of like squatting like Mars is in the background and he's got the, the really high collar, like the cape? Yeah, roughly. That sounds about right. Yeah, it's, it's okay. him in the, the reaches of space and Mars yeah, in the yeah, background. Yeah. He's kind of flying out at the viewer. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know what you're talking about. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah that's and a great he did, image. He did a, um, Cold Steel, a, a two-part JLA miniseries where they became mechs, which wasn't as good as A League of One. <laughs> he also did a couple of Shadow Empires miniseries for Dark Horse, and he does a lot of covers, but he never got to be a big name, and it's unfortunate because this is a fantastic graphic novel. All right. Well, Frank, thank you very much for being on this episode of Power of Fishnets. Uh, I love talking about Wonder Woman with you. I'm sure we have done it before. I'm sure we will do it again. Where else can people find you in the podcastosphere or, well, I was going to say blogosphere, but it sounds like you might be shutting some of the blogs down. Yeah, see, that, that's gotten around on the Twitters. All I was saying was after a month of it's doing gotten, it. It's gotten around. You tweeted it. No, what I tweeted is I wanted to put it away for a long time because I did a month of daily posts. Okay. Uh, every day was a different March Manor post like I used to do uh, before I, I, the blog ran down a couple of years ago. Plus, I had produced a Who's Who volume, you know, March Manor Who's Who volume one. You can download it on the Internet Archive. And it's, it's literally like a recreation of an issue of Who's Who with nothing but Martian Manhunter characters. And I was rushing to put that together to make sure it was done for a certain deadline. And between those two things, I'm just completely burned out on doing any kind of blogging. But literally, I'm going to have a new podcast with the Martian Manhunter before the end of the month for Halloween. And they'll continue to be Martian Manhunter content. I just don't want to do daily posting like I used to do back in the day and juggle all the other stuff ever again. So I was surprised that a post, I I think there was a tweet from like a late on a Friday night and I I didn't understand how it got so much traction. I I guess I didn't phrase things very well. So as far as the podcasts go, uh, the big one is related to this podcast is that the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast is going to right now. I think it's the the most realistic expectation is going to be a biweekly, which given the recent revelations about the character is actually somewhat appropriate. Um, (laughs) I was going to ask you about that later. <laughs> uh, basically... The the one uh, one week I'll have a DC Bloodlines, which is I I like to put those out in seasons, and the current season of Bloodlines will probably last until early next year, and then alternate Bloodlines with Diana Prince. So you're going from a, a podcast that comes out seasonally to biannually. So now it'll be biweekly, and it'll be much more of a seat of your pants sort of affair. Uh, with a lot of my other podcasts, I do a lot of production and, and a lot of editing. With this one, I basically I read one on one comic and I just start pedal to the metal, whether I love it or I hate it. I'm trying to just just tell you as much as excitedly as possible in a shorter time as possible. And uh, the one that I did that's sort of setting the tone, I had a lot of fun with and folks seemed to enjoy it. And uh, after I, I do the massive overproduced 75th anniversary podcast, Star Spangled, by the way, a lot of folks are going to be appearing on that. I don't know that I necessarily want to say everybody because I haven't recorded everybody yet, but I can say that my co-host on this episode will be there amongst others. Ange will be there and some other folks beside, but until I actually get them on tape i don't want to commit to it but that's going to be a a pretty 
long and involved look at the multitudinous secret origins of Wonder Woman and uh, commentary beyond. I was pretty sure you would cut me. <laughs> I would be on the editing floor, but... No, no, no. You're definitely going to be in there. Now, I'm going to literally, because Ryan has such blue balls over not ever having gotten to do a Secret Origins podcast featuring Wonder Woman, I'm going to have stuff that's cut out of that podcast, and it'll probably be supplemented by other conversations we'll have in the future, and just do whole episodes of him going off on his character since he it's <laughs> his favorite character, second favorite character in the DC Universe. And I will say, if it makes you feel better too, you know, Wonder Woman was my favorite character above all comic book characters for most of the 90s, and I do prefer her to Martian Manhunter. So, despite how much time and effort I've devoted to that character, character Wonder Woman is still tops over John Jones so don't feel too bad about Black Canary getting the uh, shotgun seat in to your affections sometimes the characters that are we love you know they're it, it, it might be hard to find the distance to do them justice I and mean, it was easy to do it's easy to talk about Black Canary and Zatanna because uh, well this, uh, this sounds bad but just diminished expectations well, that and also just a matter of scope. Wonder Woman's appeared in over mm-hmm. 5,000 comic books, and right. then you get into all the media stuff and the books and everything else. And there are so many different kinds of people that are Wonder Woman fans. It's such a huge, inclusive community, while also being one of the cattiest communities in all of comics. So anyone who would try to do a definitive account of this character, have mercy on their souls, because they're just <laughs> asking for all kinds of trouble. Whereas an underserved character like John Jones... I can kind of take ownership of that character. I can do things with that character that nobody else would bother to and find gold nuggets amidst his fairly extensive continuity. So why not do that excavation rather than just be another person singing in the chorus of how wonderful Wonder Woman is? Once more, my thanks to Diablo Frank for guesting on this episode and to Wonder Woman herself. Happy 75th birthday. I'm going back to all my women, you know, my strong women. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed in this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. She'll protect you like a child. That's a woman. Oh,